Well, good morning. It's good to see each and every one of you here this morning here. Um, I want to make a couple of quick announcements first. Make sure that you get one of our Easter flyers to take with you today. I put them in the Sunday school classes. Uh, if you didn't make it to a Sunday school class, then make sure that you get one of these. They are, uh, they've got the little same cartoon that we've got on the sign in the yard across the street over there, uh, and they've got the information on the times of our Easter service on the back. If you take three, you can put one on your refrigerator, you can give one to each of your neighbors. Wouldn't that be neat? See, I've said it before, and I will say it again louder this time. I uh, have very little concern uh, with how much money you give, with how much work you do, with how many visits you make, with how much singing you do, with how much Bible reading you do, with how much praying you do, if you are not telling people about Jesus. God gave you one mission. He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and, uh, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. If you are not an evangelist, if you're not inviting people to church, telling people how to be saved, then you have failed at Christianity 101, and isn't that a heavy thing to, to flunk out of? But it's the most important thing that we do is tell people about how to, have an eternal, how to have eternal life, how to have an eternal relationship with Jesus. All those other things are good. I'm glad that you do them. But what if you also took three of these postcards? So uh, they, it's a neat little cartoon. If you didn't see it, it's got a picture of the Grim Reaper sitting next to an empty tomb holding a sign that says, out of work, because that is the message of Easter is that death is dead. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, As you're finding Exodus chapter 4, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 6 in your Bibles this morning, I want to uh, look very briefly at a lot of Scripture this morning. We're going to be moving quickly, so you ought to know in the Pew Bibles, the chapters are labeled and the small numbers of the verse numbers, and we are going to be moving at an exceptional pace because today we have nine plagues to cover. Colleen said, why are you trying to cover four chapters in one day? And I said, because I'm not preaching on the plague of frogs on Easter. I just don't know that that would be a great hit. So I've got to get through the first nine plagues so that as we celebrate Easter next week, we can see the Passover. So it's been a very stretching week for me to try to figure out how to put nine plagues together coherently. Um, I thought about going the megachurch route and getting a bunch of frogs and locusts and throwing them at you to make it real, Um, but I decided faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, so we'll have to just use our imaginations. Um, As we look today, today is, of course, uh, the the time that the triumphal entry is celebrated, popularly called Palm Sunday. Um, Whether or not it was actually on a Sunday, I'm not sure. I think that I've got a hard time working that chronology out um, because I just don't count enough days. But the important thing is that we know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, which had never been ridden before. And the people saw their king coming in. They saw him as this Messiah riding in, announcing his kingship. They threw their clothes. They threw palm around and cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. Save us now. Looking for someone to defeat the Romans. But they did not get someone to defeat the Romans. They got someone to defeat death, the devil, and hell. (laughs) They were looking for the wrong kind of thing. And that is why six days apart, they could go from yelling, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. 
because they were looking for somebody else. I'm sure that everybody saw this morning, there are about three dozen uh, Egyptian Christians who lost their lives today for going to church. Apparently at two different churches, uh, terrorists, Muslim extremists, had planted bombs underneath the altar at the front of the church, which exploded, killing the, the pastor and the choir and other people within the congregation. There's, the last count that I saw was about 36 dead and about 100 wounded. Um, and it makes me wonder, how many people say, you know, I would die for Jesus if I had to? You know, if they held a gun to my head and they said, are you a Christian? I would say yes, even if it cost me my life. A lot of people say that. But what if you knew that you had a good chance of being blown up for coming to church today? See, it's a, that's a pretty convicting thing, isn't it? See, there's a, a lot of people who claim they're Christians and uh, know they're not going to get blown up at church and still don't come, right? <laughs> what if you knew that your life was on the line? Where's your heart? So I want to kind of dovetail these things together. As we think about Palm Sunday, as we think about the, uh, these people who have lost their lives in Egypt, and then these plagues, I want to talk today on the subject of gods at war. There are a lot of little g-gods in our world. A lot of people want to worship a lot of different things. A lot of people want to give their heart to a lot of different things, but God will accept no alternates. He said, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The uh, Gaither vocal band has got a song, God Doesn't Play Second Fiddle. And in the first verse, it says, in the chorus, it says, number one in the list of his big ten. He came to earth and said it again. <laughs> said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. So the question is, who is God in your life? And you say, well, you know, I would never go and bow down to the sun. But on a sunny day, do you find something else to do other than serve God? <laughs> say, I would never worship Moloch, the god that the ancient Canaanites worship, where they sacrifice their children. However, there have been more Children sacrificed in the United States since 1973 than in all of America's wars put together. <laughs> Say, I would never worship the Asherah, the fertility poles that they put up in Canaan that the Israelites were led to. And maybe we wouldn't go and worship Asherah poles, but it is not for nothing that Madison Avenue knows that sex sells, right? There is a worship of all of that in our culture. See, I would never go and I would never worship Baal or Baal. I would never go worship the Canaanite god of the skies. But how many people do worship power and will do whatever it takes to get power? So we are an idolatrous people. We are a people that give our heart to everything except the one who bought our heart with his own blood. We read back last week in Exodus chapter 4, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 5, Moses came to Pharaoh and said, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his, faith, his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh says, who's the Lord? Why should I listen to him? And then with 10 plagues, one after the other, God answers Pharaoh's question. I ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 6, look in verse 7 here. 
God tells Moses, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He says, Moses, Pharaoh may not know who I am, but you'd better know who I am. You'd better know that I'm the one that takes you out of slavery and brings you to life. We saw before, too, that Egypt is a picture of our slavery to sin, that God comes and sends the blood of the lamb to buy us out of. Do you know God is the one who has come and set you free? We go now to chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 14. We've got a lot of content to cover. I'm not going to read all four chapters in uh, total detail, but maybe you should. Maybe you should set aside 20 minutes this afternoon to see it. One thing I should tell you is that we're going to see this ongoing conflict of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Now, your heart is a funny thing. When God comes and he moves on your heart, he moves on the heart that you've been building your whole life. Some of you and some of us have got very hard hearts. God comes and we don't feel anything. Sometimes God comes and we do what the Bible says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. God starts to convict you and you hunker down. You fight back harder. And then the horrifying thing that we're going to see is that sometimes God hardens your heart. The, the word translated harden in the King James Version and in most English versions is actually, there's three separate Hebrew words that are all translated the same way in these chapters. The least common one is to make heavy, make his heart heavy. You can imagine that, you know, you, you think on it, you push yourself down. The next one is harden, you push back. The most common one, though, is a military term that means to reinforce or to strengthen. When God comes and God moves on Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh calls in for emotional reinforcements and fights back harder. When God comes and God convicts you, what is your response? Is your response, I surrender all? Or is your response to call up reinforcements to harden your heart and say, Lord, you will not rule here? There's so much here. Pharaoh, of course, has ruled over the Egyptians. Pharaoh, who claims to be God in flesh. He rules over the Egyptians, and the Israelites have been their slaves now for 430 years, and he is not eager to let them go. So in Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, God has come and he has sent these signs. He sent Pharaoh and Aaron to come, Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh to show Aaron's rod become a serpent, to show poured out and turned to blood. He's gone to show these things. But 7.13 says, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them. He here, it's not clear whether or not it refers to God or Pharaoh, but it refers to his whole life really up to this point. Pharaoh's heart has been made hard, and he will not listen to the voice. So God sends a plague. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. They said the Nile River is the source of our life. The Nile River is the source of our strength. They worshipped the goddess of the Nile. 
The thing that made the Nile, uh, the Egyptians, so much more powerful than the other empires in the region was the Nile River flooded every year. And when the Nile River flooded, like Mississippi, it would deposit rich, fertile soil along its banks and then pull it back. And it flooded regularly at the same time every year. So they were able to constantly rely on this as a source of strength. However, when the Nile did not flood, when the Nile did not overflow its banks, Egyptians would starve across the country. Their life was the Nile. So they sang songs to the Nile River. They worshipped the Nile River. They made sacrifices to the Nile River. They had many gods, but the Nile River was definitely up there. And then here, Pharaoh had said, I do not know the Lord. I don't know Jehovah. Who is he? And he finds out very quickly, he is the one that does this. Verse, chapter 7, verse 4. In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? God says, lesson one. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in mine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. So he goes, and he says, do you want to know who the Lord is? You ask the question, I'll give you the answer. Your God, the Nile, is crushed by the, serp, by the staff of my servant. Moses goes, he strikes the Nile River with his staff. It turns to blood, and everything that they relied on for their every life is crushed. Here's my question. What do you rely on for security? You say, well, I would never worship the Nile River. But there's something in your life that you expect to bring you security, that you expect to bring you comfort, you know, We may not count on the Nile River to flood once a year, but you count on your paycheck coming in every month, or you count on this, or you count on that. You count on somebody being there when you need them. Up comes the waters, and down comes the waters. What if God decided to show himself to you by showing that he was the king over that supply? Way that supply to make you realize that you had been worshiping the creator more than the creator. And so the Nile River that they worshipped is instead of being a symbol of life and fertility, becomes death to them, becomes blood. I don't want to step on next week's toes, but it's pretty. plague goes with the last one, and the second one goes with the ninth one, and the third one goes with the eighth one. This is called a chiasmus, uh, parallelism. The plagues are given in, uh, they've got a... And just as blood is death, In the first plague, blood is life in the tenth plague when the Passover lamb gives them forgiveness and freedom. Things have got a double structure. I wasn't going to go into this, so I'm going to go very quickly because this is probably extremely boring to anybody except for me. But you'll be so glad. It corresponds with the tenth one. The second one corresponds with the ninth one. It's a pattern A, B, C, C, B, A. The entire book of James is actually written in the same kind of pattern. It's a way of Hebrew poetry. But also, the plagues are given in three groups of three. There's the first plague and the second plague, and then in the third plague, God sends a plague without warning. Then there's the fourth plague and the fifth plague, and in the sixth plague, God sends a plague without warning. Then there's the seventh plague and the eighth plague, and in the ninth plague, God sends a plague without warning. They also get worse. The first three are bad. The second three are really bad. The last three are life-crushing. God says, I'm going to have your... I'm going to come, and I'm going to conquer them, and I'm going to destroy them. 
What are you going to do? The Nile River is turned to blood. There's the first plague. But look in verse 22. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. The Egyptians are also able to, apparently, their magicians are able to turn water into blood too. Now, I don't know about you, that would not be a really encouraging trick for me. If Pharaoh has just turned all the water of the Nile into blood, I don't want to see you turn water into blood. I want to see you turn blood into water. But they come and they copy what God has done. And it says, because of that, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now, this doesn't mean Pharaoh's heart got harder. It really, in the Hebrew, means his heart was hardened already. He was a hard-hearted man, and even this sign did not shake him. There are some things that because of... You, see, we don't enter today out of nowhere. The decisions that you've made in your past affect how easy it is for you to accept or reject God today. Pharaoh, by the time that God came and turned the Nile River into blood... Pharaoh was already a man whose heart was so hard and whose mind was so stubborn that he would not see the finger of God in front of him. So Pharaoh turned, went to his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. Even this would not turn his heart. And for seven days, God filled the river with blood and then gave them respite. The second plague, the plague of frogs, chapter 8, verse 10. Jump forward a little bit. He goes, and he has ca- God has caused frogs to come up and cover everything. These pests, eating uh, food, wasting crops, everywhere. And Pharaoh comes to Moses, and Pharaoh says, please take Cause the Lord, entreat the Lord to take these frogs away from me, and I will let your people go, that they may sacrifice unto the Lord. Sin is a funny master. Sin, when sin sees that it's beaten, sin will try to compromise with you. Sin will say, well, you know, if you'll just let the pressure up a little bit, then I'm sure we can work something out where you can serve God some. Pharaoh, when he finally does agree to let the people go, is going to say, well, you know, you can go, but don't go very far. He's going to say, you can go, but you need to leave your women and children here. Say, you can go, but you need to leave all your possessions and property behind. But God says, I want all of you. I want you. I want you to get far away from the world. I want your family. I want your all of you. And if you're trying to compromise with sin by leaving your relationships with God away from God or your money away from God or your family away from God or just kind of kind of stay close to sin, then you will not experience the deliverance, the exodus that God has for you. So he says, get rid of these frogs, please, and I'll let you go. Verse 10 and he said, Moses, uh, I'm sorry, verse 9, And Moses said unto over me, When shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only? Moses says, Okay, Pharaoh, tell me when do you want the frogs to go away? I'm going to show you that it's not just a natural sign that wore out. I'm going to show you that at the command of God, the frogs are going to go away. Verse 10, And he said, Tomorrow... See, 
Why do you think Pharaoh said tomorrow? Well, I think from a human perspective, Pharaoh was afraid that if he said today, that, well, Moses just knew this was about to happen. So he kind of sets a little test up. He suffers longer to try to make God prove himself. Have you ever done anything like that? Have you ever gone through more suffering than through to try to get God to prove himself? He says, he said, be it according to thy word that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. He said, it's going to happen tomorrow so that you'll know who God is, so that you'll know that God's in the control of the what and the when and the how. That these frogs, these pests, and of course, uh, one of the major Egyptian gods had a head that was shaped like a frog. So this was also an attack. And of course, the frogs came up out of the restored Nile River. The thing they worshipped not only failed them, the thing they worshipped sabotaged them. That's how sin works. You think that it's on your side. The first taste is sweet till it rots in your mouth. There is nothing there. So the frogs come, the frogs are abated. They gather them together in heaps and the land stank. Frog corpses everywhere. Verse 15 of chapter 8. But with Saul there was respite. He hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the lead. I want you to understand that in the first plague, the plague of the blood, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. In the second plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He felt the conviction of God, and literally in this one, he made heavy his heart. He pushed down the conviction that God was sending on him. He said, not now, not now, not now. Maybe you have been in a situation like that where God was laying something on your heart and you push it down, you pushed it down. Now that's worse than having a heart that's already so hard. That means that you still have a glimmer of hope and you push away the light of God. See, I don't know. I'm in a little bit. Maybe when I talk about talking to people, about Jesus, about inviting people to church, about whatever, you feel a little, like, glint of conviction. And you decide you're going to get angry instead of get submissive. You make your heart heavy. Say, well, I want to talk to them. I don't even like my neighbors. So that's easy for you to say, Justin, your neighbor's moved out this week. You don't have a neighbor. He just want you to understand. The heaviness of your heart is going to set you up for more suffering from God. Imagine if Pharaoh had, after the frogs, said, okay, I'll let them go. He would have protected himself from gnats and flies and livestock plagues and boils and darkness and the death of the firstborn, the crushing of his armies in the Red Sea. How much unnecessary suffering have you already been through? (laughs) because you would not follow the discipline of God. Frogs, third judgment, gnats, come up everywhere. Lice is the, King James has it, but it's a a broader term than just lice on your head. It's all these little bugs everywhere. It's irritation. This keeps people from being able to work, keeps people from being able to think. This filth. But when you look in verse 18, the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So they were lice upon man and upon beast. The magicians are not able to copy this. 
But then look in verse 19. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Do you see it again? His heart was strong. Everyone is covered in lice and gnats and small bugs everywhere. Everybody's suffering. His own magicians say, his own people say, the people who had talked him out of following God before say, this is the finger of God. And this time we do not read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He had already made his heart hard. He already had his heart. His heart was hardened. Again, that's the past tense. His heart was already hardened. He had a strong heart. And he would not listen, just like God announced. The next plague, the judgment sign of the flies. Flies, of course, are obviously associated with death, with rot. These different gods that they worshipped. God says, I'm going to attack this too. But I want you to see something very interesting Verse 21, else if that will not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies upon thee and upon thy servants and upon thy people and into thy houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put between my people and thy people tomorrow shall this sign be. So I'm going to send swarms of flies. Said, but this time I'm going to do something again to answer your question, Pharaoh, so that you may know that I am the Lord. There will be no flies where my people are. I've heard people say, oh, you know, jokingly, I'm going to stand away from you. I don't want God to strike me with lightning. Let me tell you, God's aim is good. <laughs> He's never missed. He says, Pharaoh, I want you to know that I know who is mine and I know who's not. So you may be able to fool me, you may be able to fool all the people around you, but God knows who is his. And in this plague too, the judgment of God comes down, and you think, it's so clear. He says, I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. I'm right here. I know who's mine. I know who's not, and I'm able to make a distinction between them. Verse 25, Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, go ye sacrifice to your God in the land. Pharaoh says, go sacrifice them, but sacrifice to your God, but don't go far. We want you to kind of you know, serve God, but also be here in slavery to sin. You know, you can go to church, but you don't have to get crazy about giving up this and that and starting to do this. And Moses says, it is not meet to do so. It's not going to work. For we will sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptian before their eyes? Will they not stone us? <laughs> says, I cannot live in two different worlds. The Egyptians will kill us if they see us doing it. If I try to follow Jesus and still continue in my sin, then I'm going to cause all kind of conflict everywhere I go. So I've got to get out. You've got to let us go. Go down now to verse uh, 30. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. 
And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. There remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. This time also, neither would he let the people go. Pharaoh made heavy his heart. He pushed it down again. He sees that God is a God who makes a distinction, and he pushes it down. How many times can you ignore the evidence of the hand of God? We're going to have to hurry, though. Time is of the essence. (laughs) Chapter 9, the plague on the livestock. Of course, this plague did not affect the children of Israel either. In verse 7 of chapter 9, And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. And the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. He sent out to double-check, said, look, make sure that surely there's some Israelite cattle who have died. 200,000 of them, 200,000 Israelites. Some of their cattle would have died just by random chance. Go look. And his messenger comes back and says, no, not one. But Pharaoh's heart was too hard to be moved by the evidence. Sometimes people say, you know, if God would just prove himself. But let me tell you, if your heart is that hard, it wouldn't matter if God killed every other cow. His heart was hardened. He would not let Israel go. Moving along to the sixth plague. The plague of boils. The plague of boils is very interesting because it hurt both livestock and people. They all have got grievous sores all over their body, except Israel and the cattle of Israel. Look in verse 10. They took ashes of the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses sprinkled it up toward heaven, and it became a boil, breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boil was upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. I told you already, and I haven't gone into detail on every one, I told you that each one of these judgments is an attack on one of the different Egyptian gods. Here, the priests who had to be physically clean, the Egyptian priests had to be physically clean, God takes away their ability to serve by covering them in boils. They're unclean before God. Now, they had really been unclean before God the whole time, because if you've read the story of David being selected as king, you know that God said, the Lord does not see as a man sees. The Lord looks at the heart. They'd always been unclean. God always looked at their heart and saw all the rotten filth that was in there. Jesus said, on the outside they're white and sepulchers, but on the inside they are dead man's bones and all uncleanness. He said, I know they're unclean, and now I reveal it. I attack their outer purity. What is it going to take if you have tried to fool people into thinking that you really know Jesus by external behavior, by being pretty good? What is it going to take for God to send down a plague to expose your uncleanness? But I want to read now to you a very scary verse, verse 12. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had spoken unto Moses. Who made Pharaoh's heart strong this time? It was not Pharaoh. It was God. James says, Ye adulterers and adulterers, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. 
The Bible says that if you try to get close to God, God will pull you closer to himself than you could ever imagine. But the example of Pharaoh tells us something is also true. If you run from God, God will let you get farther away from him than you ever could have gotten on your own. God has given Pharaoh five chances. And now God says, okay, if that's your resolve, let me help you. He says, you have made up your mind. And so now I'm going to use you as an example to teach other people the answer to your question, who I am. Now, what would happen if God hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart? Would Pharaoh have died? Would he have run away? Would he have what? We don't know. But we know that whatever would have happened, God confirming him in his decision allowed God to accomplish his sovereign purposes to lead many souls, many sons to glory. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you know that God is not obligated to keep giving you chances and chances and chances and chances? It's only by the grace of God that you get any chances at all. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, God gave them over to uncleanness. If you reject God and reject God and reject God, I cannot promise you that you're going to get another chance. I hope you are, but you don't know it. The next sign, the sign of hail. Of course, they worshiped the weather. They made sacrifices to the weather. Chapter 9, verse 14. For I will send this time all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. He says, I want you to know that there is no one like me. And so I'm going to send down a massive hailstorm. And of course, it was mingled with fire, you know, a thunderstorm and a hailstorm. As they go out, Pharaoh comes and he begs Moses, please stop this plague. Verse 29, Moses said unto him, as soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread above my hands unto the Lord and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know how that the earth is the Lord's. He says, I'm going to go. God sent this plague so that you would know there's no one like him. He's going to stop this plague so that you will know that the world belongs to him. But in verse 34, And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail were and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. God hardened his heart before. God doesn't have to harden Pharaoh's heart this time. Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. That means he feels the conviction of God. This plague is so great that he can experience it, that he can see what God's doing. And he says, no, I will not obey. And now Pharaoh is out of chances. I believe maybe that in the sixth plague, God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh and his obstinance would have one more chance in the seventh plague, so that he would be put in such an extreme position that if he would ever repent, this would be the time. But of course, God in his perfect knowledge knew Pharaoh would never repent under any circumstances. And so he lets him have it. Verse 35, the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. The eighth plague now. Then the Lord said to Moses, chapter 10, verse 1, go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these signs before him, and that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt. 
and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. He says, for the rest of these plagues, Pharaoh's heart is going to be very heavy. And everything else that happens is not for Pharaoh, it's not for the Egyptians. It is ultimately as a sign to the generations to come that we could read and we could see who God is. He said, you've made up your mind, Pharaoh, and now come the consequences. You say, would God really do that? Let me tell you, the, the people, we read the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man, of course, was cruel to Lazarus his entire life. And you would think, well, in hell, you know, he would probably kind of get the picture. But that is not true. <laughs> he still thinks Lazarus is his slave in hell. He says, go send him to get me some water. When we follow down the path of sin, we get so deep that only a miracle can pull us out. And when God sends a miracle of revelation in our hearts, when he, through his provenient grace, gives us the chance to repent and respond, and we don't, eventually we run out of chances. How long do you think that God is going to mocked? Whatsoever man soweth, so also shall he reap. Verse 20, of course, after the plague of the locusts, God hardened his heart. He did not let Israel go. The ninth plague, he sent darkness over the land, but not darkness over the land of the Israelites. And still... Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let him go. This is after God had told, after Pharaoh had said, you, you can go but leave your stuff behind. You know, you can follow God, but don't let it get into your money or your lifestyle and things like that. You know, leave that stuff here with us so that we'll know you'll come back. Pharaoh was a little more honest about it, right? Pharaoh said, leave your stuff here so I know you're not going to leave forever. Satan says, leave me your money, leave me your stuff, keep subscribing to the same cable channels or whatever, because I know that if I've got those things, I'll get you back. As long as you keep flirting with sin, Satan knows that he'll get you back. Pharaoh knew that if he could let the Israelites go without taking everything that he knew, that he could get them to only partway go, and they'd always be. God sends darkness, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. But what does he teach throughout this whole thing? He teaches that he is the Lord. That he is the one who comes and brings his people out. That he's the one who knows who belongs to him and he doesn't. That although the Egyptians worship the sun and the Nile River, and they, they worship the, the sky, they worship all these different things, he's the one who says, your gods are dust underneath my feet. All the things that you place your trust in, all the things that you put before God, all the things that you let have priority in your life, all the things that stir your heart to worship are nothing before God. And what would it do to you if God trusted them to show you that? Pharaoh lost everything. I don't think that I'm going to spoil the ending for very many of you by telling you that all Pharaoh's army drowned in the Red Sea. He loses everything because he will not listen to God. What idol in your life, what thing in your life that is more important to you than God, more important to you than the service of God, the thing that you know is a sin, and you say, well, I know it's a sin, but you know, 
What thing in your life is pulling you away from the fullness of fellowship with God? Because God looks at Satan and he looks at you and he says, let my people go. You do not need to be enslaved to sin anymore. Jesus came and Jesus died to set you free. Jesus paid the punishment of your sin. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's Christ that died, you rather than live it ever to make intercession for us. If God is, if God says you are free, you are not guilty, then why do you let anyone or anything hold you in slavery to sin anymore? You say, you know, I just can't help this. If the Bible says there's no temptation that's overtaking you, but such as common to man, but in every temptation, God provided a way of escape that he might be able to bear it. Who are you to say, no, God, you didn't do what you promised? If you will make the decision right now and say, God, you are God alone. There is none like you. You are the God in the midst of the earth. You are the one who rules. You're the one who makes 